Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona Mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One Today is Thursday, July 20th, 2023 Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here on a very, very early Thursday Thursday morning, at least for us, uh, doing this outside of our usual time. And we're here to talk about all the latest uh, Formula One news, all the happenings, all the goings on. We've got a Grand Prix coming up again this weekend. And Hammy, brother, this is way too early to be doing this uh, by, by my body clock. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, it's funny because I was thinking about it, right? Like when we decided to do this uh, very early, like last night, we decided we'll do this early tomorrow morning rather than our usual time Thursday night. I'm like, this is gonna, this will be easy until like I had to set my alarm to get up use, earlier than usual. It's like I could have powered through and done like an all nighter, no problem. But trying to get up early is a little bit of a struggle. So, you know, I'll, I'll be going through the coffee as we uh, as we record here today. But how are you, sir? I'm so I'm so different that I struggle with our 9 p.m. podcast, which is when we typically record is like 9 p.m. on a Thursday night. But by 10, I'm falling asleep at the keyboard. So I love these early starts. We've got to find we have to kind of find some kind of middle ground but dude i i'm doing well we've got some really cool stories to talk about today and, and as a reminder we've dropped a ton of shows recently so we dropped a great new show last week we dropped a great new show earlier this week last week of course we still have the daniel ricardo emergency reaction podcast if you haven't checked that out i highly highly recommend you do and of course this weekend we're going to have the hungarian grand prix race review that'll drop at some point on sunday um hopefully a little bit earlier than normal but again i think it's the summer and we're both slammed so it'll be some point Sunday maybe Sunday night we'll see um, and then we've got a ton of really cool stuff lined up in August and the pod my friend I'm most excited about is your major league soccer 101 episode I'm super super pumped about that yeah so I'm looking forward to putting that one together and yeah we got lots of fun things to look forward to as well to you know to to throw out there during the, the summer break which it seems crazy to think that summer break is only a couple of week, weeks away now because in my mind, it doesn't really feel like it was all that long ago since the season kicked off and started getting going. And here we are because like, you know, usually for me, like, well, and I think for everyone else, you have like two halves to the Formula One season before the summer break and after the summer break. And it's just like, how did we get here so quickly? It's just, it's amazing how quickly this uh, the, this season has gone so far. Anyways, before we get into it, just want to give a, uh, a shout out to the Race Weekend magazine. If you want to head over to their website, theraceweekend.com, and that's R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. 
Enter in our promo code ScuderiaPod at checkout and save 10% on a subscription. And also check out RacingExclusives.com. Uh, They've uh, provided a one-of-a-kind autographed uh, Max Verstappen one-half scale helmet for the winner of our Fantasy uh, League this year. And uh, Tease and the crew do a wonderful job there. And they have like everything comes with a, a certificate of authenticity. And then our watch party this uh, coming up in November. And uh, that will be at uh, Mr. Hamilton's Palatial Estate here. And uh, we ask that all that attend uh, make a make a, a nice donation, a recommended donation to the uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association. And then moving into some of the, I wouldn't say lighter news, but uh, a couple of like the little quick hits that we do when we uh, when we start the show. So congrats to K-Mag, Kevin Magnus and his wife just uh, had the, you know, gave birth to their second child and uh, her name is Agnes. And then what's going on with Apex, the, the, the Formula One movie, Brad Pitt's movie. We were gushing about this one week ago today, but there's been some drama actually in Hollywood. Mark, what's happening? What's, what's going on? Don't tell me this is this is going to happen now or what's going on it's it's going to happen but it's not going to happen for a, a little while so i think as most of you probably know production on all television and and major motion pictures have ground to a halt uh, it started originally at the beginning of may when the writers guild of america the wga went on strike they took labor action and then that was subsequently followed by um the sag so the actors have actually also gone out on strike, so this is probably the the biggest kind of most uh, I would say um, uniform labor action in that industry in at least fifty or sixty years. And I think the reaction, of course, is that the executives from some of these big media companies are asking for huge concessions um, and are making very small offers to all of the men and women that work so hard to create this content that we all enjoy so much. Um, so as a result, they're at loggerheads right now, and it's completely. Uh, completely slow to a crawl. And of course, um, our our hearts and our, our prayers and of course, our best wishes go to everybody on uh, on the side of the, the SAG and the WGA. And we hope this gets resolved and we hope you get the deal that you're all looking for. And we hope that we can see some really great content coming forward. But yeah, things like Apex, and you're starting to see this with major productions that are being delayed and kicked down the road a few months. Uh, but this is definitely one of them. Yeah, what, what, what a shame. And hopefully it gets uh, resolved uh, quickly, like you say. And then our final uh, little uh, quick uh, news piece here is that there are rumors and mumblings and grumblings that perhaps multiple teams have breached the 2022 cost cap. So this is very much a, a stay tuned for more information. Hammy, what do we know, if anything? Yeah, so there's there's news coming out of Italy and there's news coming out of Spain and a couple of stories that have filtered out of Germany in the last few days that as many as three. And we'll talk a little, we've actually got a story in the in the outline today from Stefano Domenicali and his perspective on how teams should be punished if they breach. But it's rumored that as many as three teams have, have breached once again. And if you recall the drama last, Last year that began during the summer and kind of slid through the late summer and into the fall. It wasn't a lot of fun. Um, we know that the FIA has devoted twice as many resources to managing and auditing this process, but it will be very unfortunate if for the second consecutive year, multiple teams, but I didn't put the story in the outline because I'm not super comfortable with the sources on, on any of these, but I had to acknowledge it. We had to acknowledge it just because the conversation is so prevalent on the web right now. Like, yeah, we're seeing it and we're close to it, but until we start to see some reporting that we're comfortable talking about, uh, we'll kind of leave this conversation on the sidelines. Yeah. It would, uh, be interesting to see who and if and how and what and all the details so 
you know, stay tuned, uh, like we say. Okay, a couple of, you know, interesting stats that we have here. Uh, the first one comes from F1 Stats Guru. And for the first time in the uh, the turbo hybrid era, so at least since the first time in uh, 2014, do we have car numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4 on the grid? And that will be this weekend in, uh, in Hungary. So car number one is uh, the reigning doubled world champion, Max Verstappen. Number two is Logan Sargent, the uh, the American rookie for Williams. Number three is none other than the Honey Badger himself, Danny Ricardo, back in the cockpit of his uh, Alpha Tauri. And then number four is Lando Norris, the McLaren driver. So this is the sorry, this is the first time that these uh, numbers one, two, three, and four have been on the the Formula One grid since 2013. And in 2013, the four drivers that were number one, two three and four were uh, Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber who were one and two for Red Bull because they would have been reigning world champions because back in the day for for new uh, for, for new fa- newer fans anyways that was like one of the badges of honor literally that if you were the, the 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 driver's champion you got to put number one on your car and so so Max has kind of like resurrected that uh, tradition on his own I mean they've all had these uh, you know personal numbers for a while so the you know, reigning world champ would have number one his teammate would have number two uh number three in 2013 was fernando alonso and number four was felipe massa all right uh the next interesting stat is the the fewest f1 races to get to a podium in the 21st century and this comes from author andy anderson so number one is uh, lewis hamilton who uh took a whole one race to get to the podium in australia in 2007 Kevin Magnussen did the same thing in Australia in 2014. Robert Kubica took three races to get to a podium, and he achieved that in Italy in 2006. Juan Pablo Montoya took five races to get onto the podium, and his first podium was in Spain in 2004. Lance Stroll took eight races to get onto the podium, and he did that when he got his P3 at Azerbaijan and Baku City Circuit in 2017. Tiago Montero took nine races to get to the podium, and that uh, happened at the U.S. Grand Prix in 2005. And then finally, Nelson Piquet Jr. took 10 races and got onto the podium in Germany in 2008. So very, very cool. Hammy, you look like you want to say something. Just, I have to add this because it's remarkable that Lewis Hamilton and Kevin Magnussen both both started their careers with a podium finish, but boy, did things diverge from there. So Lewis Hamilton, just as kind of a point of reference, 320 career starts, 195 podiums. Mr. Kevin Magnussen, 151 career starts, that remains his sole podium. And again, I'm not trying to compare Lewis Hamilton and Kevin Magnussen, but it's remarkable that Kevin Magnussen scores a podium in his first Grand Prix and the 150 subsequent races he hasn't been able to return to the podium, which is just an amazing, amazing... I don't want to say it's a feat, but it's a... I would say it was far more likely than unlikely that he would have scored another podium and he hasn't done so. Yeah, you know, that that one kind of like slipped into the, the crevices of my memory because if you go back to 2014, wind it back almost a decade, I think my reaction that entire race weekend was... Man, these cars are quiet because the Australia 2014 would have been the first time that we we saw the the the, the V6 turbo hybrid actions or engines in action. And for for those of us that have been watching Formula One a long time, the when the cars, you know, like especially on Sunday when you know the start of the the race itself, we're like, 
what happened to the noise? Well, these cars are so quiet. Anyways, uh, don't want to take anything away from from uh, from K Mag, but uh, yeah, interesting how, like you say, his careers diverged from uh, Lewis Hamilton's. Now, Mark, I'll let you take this next one. So Nicholas Latifi, I think he made his his name made into a podcast recently. So he was uh, in Formula One for several seasons, and uh, last year was his last year with Williams, and uh, he was uh, dropped in favor of. Logan Sargent. They uh, decided not to bring him back for this year. So Nikki has been up to something else. So what, what has Nicholas Latifi been up to, Mark? Well, I think what we do know is subsequent to his departure from Formula One, he's been very, very quiet. And I, I think there was kind of an understanding and an impression that maybe he was going to pursue opportunities in other racing series, whether that was Formula E or whether it was Indy or whether it was DTM. Um, but he's been very quiet and his social media presence has been non-existent. But he did come onto social media this week with a statement and his statement statement reads, and I won't read the whole thing, but basically he acknowledges, look, I've been really quiet on social media this year. I've seen plenty of messages from supporters worldwide asking what I've been up to, what my plans will be for the future. As of recently, I have some news I'd like to share with you. I decided very early on in this year that I wouldn't have any racing plans for 23. It definitely felt very strange not having the same routine I've had for over half my life. Knowing that I wouldn't be behind the wheel of a race car this year, I'd obviously begun to think of what could be for next year, whether that involved racing or something completely different. I've decided that for the immediate immediate future, I want to take some time and pursue a different avenue and focus on another pass. And he goes on to explain that he's going to be enrolling in an MBA program uh, in the United Kingdom because he wants to pursue a career in business. And I think he's going to be going to LBS, the London Business School, um, as soon as August of this year. So Nick Slatifi, I think there was a lot of speculation, rumor that he might begin competing in a different racing series, um, has come forward and acknowledged that that's not his future. Um, that's not what he's intending to do right now, but rather he wants to pursue um, a future in, in business and pursue to his MBA. Interestingly, I'm not sure, and I saw, I think, the Fifth Wheel podcast tweet this, like, I'm not sure if he has an undergraduate degree uh, that would kind of function as the foundation for an MBA, but whatever the case. Um, and just a reminder, too, that he comes from uh, a very, very wealthy billionaire family. His father immigrated to Canada from Iran many, many decades ago, and he started a number of monstrously successful food companies. So it would make sense if he was to join the family business with that MBA, or alternatively, maybe he gets involved in motorsports in a business capacity as well. But yeah, for now, it looks like pursuing a uh, ongoing career track in motorsports is not what he's going to pursue, but he's going to pursue his MBA at the London School of Business, which is really cool. And I appreciate the update from uh, from friend of the show, Mr. Nicholas Latifi. Yeah, it's uh, very cool. And uh, good luck uh, to Nikki. Okay, Mark, let's uh, get into uh, some of the news here. So this uh, first one comes from uh, Toby Gruner. So apparently the FIA is uh, expected to approve uh, Michael Andretti's Formula One application. So uh, FOM and the Formula One teams are still suspected to be against uh, the new entries. And uh, Toby says that uh, they've got more info about the developing power struggle and the four other applicants still trying to join the grid. So what what's going on here? It sounds like uh, there, there's a bit of a dare I say a schism happening here it's a, it sounds at least at the very least that they're not all on the same page right I, I think that word daily schism is is perfect right that if you flash back to earlier this year the FIA opened up that expressions of interest protocol which enabled teams potential teams to come forward and indicate hey we would like to pursue an application and at the time I think everybody at FOM at Liberty at the commercial rights group they threw their hands up in the air they're just like look 
this isn't something that we're open to at this time. Why is the FIA expressing to the world that FIA, that, that Formula One is in an expansion mode? So as it stands right now, and Stefano Domenicali has been crystal clear this week because obviously the drum is beating louder and louder as we're getting closer and closer to this time where the FIA is presumably going to announce that it's going to prove one or maybe multiple multiple bids. Uh, but Stefano Domenicali this week has been crystal clear. He does not accept a new team. He's incredibly happy with 10 teams. 10 teams is the right number of teams. He doesn't want more than 20 drivers on the grid. And I think there's going to be a clash that that schism is very real. And I think it cooled down earlier this year when Mohamed Ben Salem stepped away from kind of the day-to-day operation of the F1 part of the FIA business portfolio. Um, and I think that helped things, but I think it's all going to come to a head again because the FIA is obviously going to recommend or approve one of these bids and it's probably going to be Andretti. And that's going to immediately put the FOM in a really difficult position because their perspective, their position is that we're not in expansion mode right now. And they're going to have to be the ones that deny that deny that bid. And then Andretti, of course, is going to be able to do the kind of the media circles and be able to scream, hey, you know what? The FI approved us. Why is it the FOM? Those greedy teams, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, clearly, clearly, clearly they're not aligned here. And I, I think it's really an AMUS did an article earlier this week as well that talks about this ongoing power struggle between the FIA and Formula One, the commercial rights group, in terms of, hey, who's really in control here? Like who really owns and who really runs Formula One. And I think this is a perfect example of, of that, like you said, ongoing ongoing schism. So we expect, Toby Gruner acknowledges that, hey, it's understood that the Andretti bid is going to be approved. And based on everything that Stefano Domenicali has said this week, the FOM will not approve that bid. And it's not unilateral. Neither side can unilaterally um, enable a team to join the grid. Both teams have to come together. And I think the FOM is hugely influenced by the teams who they represent and who they work very closely with. But like I've said before, my sense here is that I think FOM is open to new teams, but they're not open to new teams under the terms of the current Concord Agreement at that $200 million. But if I am if I am Stefano Domenicali and ultimately the FIA approves Andretti, you can still negotiate with him. You can bring him to the table and say, look, you know what? We too could potentially be open to a new addition, but that number, that $200 million anti-dilution fee, you have to recognize and appreciate and respect that that's no longer a realistic number. If you're willing to talk about an 800 million dollar anti-dilution fee let's have a conversation so i hope they don't i hope they don't instinctively just reject the bid have a conversation and negotiate because my sense is the reason that fom is so cold on new teams is because they want to kick this down the road until we get a new concord agreement and a new concord agreement that states very clearly that the expansion or anti-dilution fee is going to be 800 or a billion dollars but yeah it's going to be a really bad look because inevitably the fia is going to say we approve this team or these teams and then the fom is going to come out and say hey we don't and it's just going to look bad for everybody you know it's interesting when we have this conversation right because, uh, you know, obviously we're on the outside and we have no, uh, you, you know, no real appreciation of, of how much it actually takes to operate and run and manage a Formula One team. But I, I think even for us, just the, the, the number of $200 million seems ridiculously cheap or inexpensive in, in this day and age, right? It just it, it seems it just seems so out of line with the with reality. So I, I can certainly understand why the FOM and the teams are are not, 
you know, they're, they're not exactly, you know, super eager for this to happen. And you, you can understand why. But, you know, l like you so correctly say, Mark, that if they get Andretti or Lucky Sun or High Tech or any of these other rumored bids that uh, that could take one or both of these uh, or, you know, these uh, these two slots uh, in the future, that if they're willing to come back and start negotiating at, at 800 or a billion dollars, then, then sure. But I don't think it serves anybody's like exist or anyone with existing interests in Formula One and it, it sounds almost like a little bit you know it's like it almost seems like a little bit almost protectionist but you can understand why they're they're, they're doing it because they've you know it, in some cases invested hundreds or millions of perhaps billions of dollars into these programs over the years and you know the, the the prize money is how they recoup some of these costs right and so you can understand why they would be you know um you know resistant to a newcomer that uh, that comes along especially with the surge in popularity that we've seen in Formula One over the past 18 to 24 months or so. May, well, maybe even a little bit longer. I'd say maybe even going back to 2020, because when you think about it, when everybody was sitting at home, not doing everything because the world was shut down because of COVID, Formula One for that, that summer of 2020 was about the only thing going anywhere that resembled anything close to normal. And the fact that we got, what was that, a 16-race season or whatever it was, albeit a shortened one, was, uh, was a miracle. But then you have the whole drive to survive phenomenon and the way that uh, you have this uh, this global interest in the sport now that the the, the teams are pro probably finally thinking hey you know we're we're getting some of the the you know the what do you see the the reaction <clears throat> excuse me and the interest that uh, that we think that we can get but you know hey well what about like these 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 new guys like why should they start to reap the benefits of everything that uh, you know so many of us have uh, put in so many many years have time and money and effort into so kind of makes sense daily i i couldn't i couldn't have summarized it better i think you articulated that beautifully and it's weird because in a sense you and i come across as protectionist and protective of the teams like why are we sitting here why are we protecting the billionaire owners of these individual f1 teams but we were kind of here with them through the dark days of f1 like the 2014 to 2022 period right where there weren't a ton of eyeballs on the sport there there wasn't a ton of sponsors the racing was really terrible it wasn't super competitive um and now a lot of those things are fundamentally changing the economics are better there's more eyeballs there's more, more sponsors so like hey when a team comes on well, like when a team proposes to enter the sport, like, yeah, we get it. But where were you five or six years ago where you could have got on the grid literally for free? And if you want to join the grid, you know what? These other teams have paid their dues. They've paid the cost. They built the infrastructure. Like you need to pay your financial dues as well. All of that to say, I said this on the, the last podcast, though. Um, I was thinking about this a lot and I was thinking about the different teams and, and I kind of done this kind of ranking process of teams and how, how truly invested they are in being a competitive championship caliber F1 team. And I kind of boiled it down to the fact that, look, we have Alpha Tauri, we have Haas, and we have the current iteration of Williams. And of course, I think you and I have kind of a soft spot for them. We hope they improve, but I can't believe for a second that Andretti wouldn't come on the grid 
and outspend those three teams. Like, I, I think Andretti would be a better fit if you're talking purely from an investment perspective, purely in terms of throwing everything in the kitchen sink at the wall to be a competitive F1 team. Andretti would be better and deliver more value to the championship than AlphaTauri for sure, than Haas for sure, than Williams for sure. Like, I, I think... That's where I, my opinion starting to evolve a little bit that, hey, I still want them to pay their due. You know, I don't think they should get a free pass joining the grid. But at the same time, I would rather see a, a championship hungry Andretti that's willing to spend to the cap and build a facility and, and spend money, get the best possible drivers. Like I would rather see that than the current iteration of AlphaTauri, which is frankly a joke, and the current iteration of Haas, which with all due respect, is being run on a shoestring budget. And the current version of Williams, which is rocking a 20-year-old factory with some of the worst infrastructure in the sport, like at least Andretti could come in and make the noise and make the investments necessary to compete. But I just, I think they need to pay their due. But the question that I have, kind of going back to the very beginning is, why would the FIA open up this expressions of interest protocol, this process, if they know damn well what F1's opinion is. They know F1 is not in an expansion mode, but they do it anyways, which goes back to that that point about this being a power play and a power struggle and increasing that schism between the two sides, like you said. Yeah, and and, and that's a funny thing too, right? Is even if the FIA like approves like one or two of these uh, the, these bids, right? I mean, can the, the FOM and the, the, the Formula One teams effectively put the brakes on and say, you know, we, we don't want to do this or, or how can they oppose this or can they take, you know, launch some sort of legal action against it? So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that uh, even if, uh, you know, Andretti and one of these other bids get the green light to join the grid in 2026, that uh, <laughs> that that it would happen right away, that uh, I, I, I just... I, I see a whole bunch of uh, road, you know, speed bumps along the way and uh, potential roadblocks as well. So, again, we'll just have to to see how this one uh, develops. Okay, let's uh, take a quick break. We'll uh, we'll hear uh, quickly from our sponsors. We'll come back. We'll pick it up on the other side, and we'll we'll talk about uh, also perhaps some other future F one news here. So we'll do that in a moment. So please don't go away. We will be right back. Ah, uh, hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And the next story here involves uh, IndyCar championship leader Alex Palu confirming last week that he has no offers for any or from any Formula One teams for 2024 on the table at the very moment. He feels or he feels like uh, F1 is pivotal in his immediate future and the clock is ticking for him. This is a, a nice story that has been put together by Jack Binion over at therace.com. And uh, Mark, uh, do you think that uh, this is going to happen? Do you, do you 
think that uh, Alex Palu's uh, future lies in Formula One, or is this uh, w- w- what's going on here? What do you think? You think he would be a great fit, the young Spanish driver. Of course, he won the 2021 Disney Championship. He has a stranglehold on the championship this year in front of six times champion Scott Dixon. Currently, like if I take a quick glance at the Indy Championship standings, he's sitting on a whopping 417 points to Scott Dixon's. 300 points. So I think there's every reason to expect that he's going to become a two times IndyCar champion. Now, of course, last season, amongst all of the the craziness in in the driver contract uh, operating forum, of course, we had all that noise and the friction with Oscar Piastri, et cetera, et cetera, was the fact that he had tried to make a shift, a fundamental shift from Ganassi over to McLaren. Uh, that didn't work out and there was legal action. But I, I think the agreement in the end was that he would stay with Ganassi, but that he would effectively enter the McLaren uh, Formula One ecosystem, meaning that, hey, he would get the opportunity to test some McLaren equipment and be around the factory and visit the MTC and get some simulator time. He hasn't driven uh, a current spec, a current gen uh, McLaren Formula One car, although he has had the opportunity to get a little bit of seat time in some of the older machinery. But I think he would be a great fit for Formula One, not just because he is European, obviously, and because he's had some experience with some of the kind of junior formula, but this is an individual who's now clearly demonstrated that he can win in an extremely challenging open wheel racing series. And Indy's challenging for a number of reasons. One, because of the mix of the tracks, everything from oval to street courses um, to dedicated circuits, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also much closer to a spec series than is Formula One. So if you are able to demonstrate a sustained uh, a sustained period of success, it really does mean that you are one of, if not the best driver in that championship. And I think right now, obviously, I think we could all argue and kind of make the case that Max is driving the best car, but he's also the best driver. But I think there's times in the past where we've looked at the F1 championship and there's teams or drivers that are particularly good, but it's a byproduct of the car they're in. But I think what Alex is doing in Indy right now is representative of the fact that he's one of the best open wheel drivers in the world, not currently in Formula One. But again, I think partly because of his relationship to the McLaren uh, organization and the fact that both of those seats are spoken for, Lando short of going to Ferrari, which has been rumored, although I think everyone's going to pour cold water on that, and Oscar Piastri having an increasingly good rookie season, I don't see an opening happening there. Not that he couldn't be put on loan or sign a deal somewhere else, uh, but like you you and I talked about last week with Daniel Ricciardo taking that Nick DeVries seat, um, I'm not sure where his opening's going to be, but again, as a potentially a two-time IndyCar champion in a extremely difficult, extremely competitive championship. Um, I think he's earned his dues and obviously he has the super license so he could sign the agreement and come over um, and compete today. And I would love if if an opening came at Haas with Magnussen or Hulkenberg or any of those seats, um, I would love to see Alex make the transition because I think it's representative of the fact that there's increasingly synergies between the two series and increasingly strong relationships. Uh, but I would also just love the narrative of like, hey, how can the indie champion, the current indie champion, uh, translate his skill set to Formula One? I think that would be very cool to see. You know, Mark, it, it's kind of interesting too because I was uh, thinking about it that uh, just listening to these uh, stories about Alex over the past uh, couple of days or week or whatever it's been, it's just that usually when we hit uh, the the summer here, 
that it's usually also coincides with with silly season. And if you're new to Formula One, silly season is is basically the driver's market, and it's it's usually in full swing by the time you hit the the, the middle or end of July. And it just seems like it's been very very quiet from that uh, that that rumor mill at uh, at this point in the, in the summer so far. And I just kind of wonder. Is it because compared to what we've seen in the past with Formula One, and regardless, you know what, what I'm going to say, I'm just going to preface it with the fact that uh, the you and I, <clears throat> excuse me, usually bring up at this point is that that Formula One uh, contracts are, are very secretive. We don't see the terms. It's not released like uh, you, you hear like terms of a, of a deal in other sports with the length of contract and, and money and all those uh, sorts of things. Uh, but, you know, the one thing that we've seen over the past couple of years is every time a driver's inked a new deal, be it Charles, be it Max, be it Lando, whoever, it's like they, they've, they've been rumored to be multi-year deals, you know, three, four, five years in some cases, which has been very unformula one like but very normal for, for other sports. So I just kind of wonder, you know, maybe there is something to the maybe there's some sort of language in some of these contracts now that that maybe makes them a little bit more more binding. And the fact that your Charles Leclerc's, your Lando Norris's and your Max Verstappen's just really aren't going anywhere at the moment, at least for the next uh, couple of years, you know? I totally agree. And I have a summary here. And again, this is to the best of our knowledge, because again, these agreements are pretty secretive unless the team or the driver comes forward and it expresses like, hey, it was specifically a two or three year deal. Um, it's not always completely um understood, but I think this list that I'm going to share does a pretty good job of it. The other thing to consider, of course, and you and I have talked about this before, is that contracts aren't worth the paper they're written on and teams can kind of tear them up at any point. And because there isn't a cap for drivers, they're happy to do that. Like, hey, you know what? You're under contract next year for $5 million. Take the $5 million and stay home. We're going in another direction. But a couple of the interesting ones. So Nico Hulk, Nico Hulkenberg's under contract through the end of 24. Kevin Magnuson, when he came back last year, signed a two-year deal. So he's out of contract this year. So maybe Maybe there's an opportunity there, especially with Haas kind of repositioning itself as Alfa Romeo. Sargent's under contract till the end of this year. Albon under contract to the end of this year. Yuki under contract to the end of this year. Ricardo under contract to the end of this year. Zhu under contract to the end of this year. Bottas through 25. Ocon through 24. Gasly through 24. Lance Stroll, again, that's the mystery contract. Nobody, nobody understands what's going on there. Fernando Alonso through 24. Oscar through 24. Uh, Lando Norris through 25. Carlos through 24, Charles Leclerc through 24, Russell through 24, Lewis, of course, through this year. There's lots of speculation and conversation about his his uh, extension coming up. Sergio Perez through 24, although that's one to watch. And Max Verstappen is contracted through the end of 2028. So yeah, there's definitely some contracts maturing or coming to an end this year. Uh, so definitely a possibility, but you're right. Like this is, this is silly season where a, a lot of that movement happens. So I think if Alex is going to make the move, um, we'll probably hear about it in the next six to eight weeks for sure. Yeah. That, that, that's a great point because, uh, you know, like when you nicely summarize that, that perhaps that, uh, you know, teams are going to want to put, uh, you know, if, if somebody decides to move away from one of their current drivers, they're going to, you know, get it done sooner rather than later. Number one, to make sure that if there's an asset out there that they want to bring into their team, that they can secure that driver and their services sooner rather than later. And then also have some clarity going into to next year as uh, as well. Okay, the next story here that we're going to talk about, Mark, is, and, and I feel like we got robbed on this one. <laughs> 
always jokey to cite. This is a story that comes uh, courtesy of Jonathan Noble over at motorsport.com. And uh, this is uh, the fact that uh, Formula One and CEO Stefano Domenicali are now you know, considering what they call a grand slam for the uh, for the sprint weekends. And that's a term that you and I kind of like threw out there, what, at least two years ago i can't remember it seems like something uh anyways uh, dominicali had the following to say quote there will be six sprints and we will announce them i think in september because we will have a meeting of the formula one commission scheduled for the weekend of the belgian grand prix there's a proposal that i would like to make in line with the concept of the grand slam is it is that the drivers who take the two poles and the two race wins over the weekend should be recognized with something extra which represents the sporting enterprise that they have achieved End quote. So there you go. Um, you know, they, we're not really too sure what that is, but it, uh, I guess that uh, they would, uh, you know, throw something in there like extra points or whatever. And uh, Domenicali did uh, for, you know, qualify that or explain a little bit uh, more by saying, quote, we have analyzed this point. I believe that uh, the risk is more related to loyal viewers who've had their own habits rather than to new fans who are much more open to the change. However, there's no big news on the format front. We want to stabilize the six weekends with the sprint race and respect the habits of longtime fans. So, you know, he's, he's not really divulging too much, but I mean, the, the idea of a Grand Slam, I mean, what more could you really do other than give that driver extra points? Your thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, first of all, I feel robbed. I feel we are we're personally robbed <laughs> because we've been advocating for a very similar concept. The four majors, we've been advocating for that for at least three years, in fact. But it's cool. It's cool. You know what? Somebody at F1 has been listening to this podcast and taking notes. I'm totally cool with that. But yeah, I, I agree. Like, hey, look, you know what? We're going to we're going to acknowledge that some of these events are majors and we're going to do something special if a driver themselves uh, can kind of capture magic in a bottle, uh, lightning in a bottle and score a couple of podiums and a couple of race wins on the Grand Prix weekend. That's cool. But like you said, like short of giving them more hardware, a fancier trophy, like how else can you acknowledge and recognize their performance other than additional points? I think that's really all you can all you can do, right? Unless there's a financial reward as well, and, and maybe that's compelling. Although I don't think fans get excited about drivers getting a million dollar check. Like that's not something we get behind, but maybe points because it influences the championship in in some way. But yeah, I, I feel like you're right that that's really the only thing they can do here. Yeah, I mean, you know, giving like a driver like a, a monetary reward. I mean. Yeah, I I don't really like that idea because these these drivers are already making a pile of money, and you know that seems to be more of a personal. I mean, it's all a personal gain, anyways. I mean, you recognize the sporting achievements by, like you say, points or maybe some sort of fancy trophy or some sort of award or something. I don't know. Maybe they come up with something like the Ayrton Senna Award or something like that. That you know, whoever like literally uh, you know scores the the Grand Slam and 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 checks all those boxes gets awarded with a, a, a special trophy that could be used to you know you know recognized or named after some uh, you know iconic figure of the sport. So hey, you know, we're we're gonna trademark that right now. If the Ayrton Senna like trophy becomes a thing for the Grand Slam weekends. We'll know that Stefano is uh, you know listening to the show and stealing our ideas. You know so. I'm going to write that down right now. Anyway, sticking with uh, <laughs> with Formula One, sticking with Stefano Domenicali, this is another uh, story uh, picked up by, uh, or the, uh, written by Jonathan Noble over at uh, motorsport.com. And uh, Stefano actually says that uh, cost cap cheats should get sporting sanctions, which, uh, you know, kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier in the, in the, in the program and the fact that there are some 
some rumblings and some news kind of percolating to the surface that uh, there have a number of teams that uh, that breached the cost cap uh, last year and uh, Stefano uh, you know is, is very much in favor of um, of, uh, of uh, penalties and sanctions for that uh, saying quote I would uh, like the penalty to be sporting in case of infringement it is something that we ask for very clearly there are the three regulations to be respected sporting technical and financial any infractions must be punished with sporting measures. You can't go in other directions, end quote. So there you go. So is this, you know, the, the first kind of, what was the correct word? The first uh, maybe step in the direction of giving the, the, the cost cap some teeth, Mark? Because, you know, when, when the news of the, 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 the Red Bull uh, breach last year came out or, you know, we were just like, okay, well, there was no real incentive for them or anyone to really stay in their own lane, so to speak. But, you know, now that, and, you know, you hear these comments by Stefano and you hear like all these rumors and stuff like that. And it just kind of makes you wonder that, you know, are these stories going to come up? And if so, has he kind of like tipped his hand at that and then saying, okay, well, you know, maybe the cost cap is as gutless and, you know, as as meaningless as as everybody knows it is. And it's time to put some real teeth into this thing so that anybody that uh, infringes it and breaches the cost cap faces some very, very real and serious repercussions for doing so. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I'm going to preface my statement, my my response, by reading a quote from Ferrari team principal, Frederick Vasseur, from earlier this year. Um, and he said, with respect to the penalty that was ultimately handed down to Red Bull last year, he says, and I quote, I think it was not a penalty. It was very low. If you consider that, basically, we will improve a bit less than one second over the season in terms of arrow. You get the penalty of 10% of this. It's, it's one-tenth. And I, I think he, like a lot of team principals, were very vocal about the fact that the penalties that were handed down to Red Bull, which was the $7 million fine um, and a reduction in arrow testing time, was very, very light that the current regulations have no teeth. And of course, the fines, the the penalties that are applied come from the financial regulations. So we have technical regulations, we have sporting regulations. Now with the cost cap, we have the financial regulations. The reality though is, in and this is where I'm not mad at Red Bull. I'm, I'm not mad at Red Bull. I'm angry at the teams collectively. They all collectively agreed to the regulations as they were written. You know, as, as a Frederick Vasseur or a Total Wolf, you can't you can't be mad that a team breaks the cost cap, doesn't get the cost cap compliance certificate, and gets a fine that's only in line with the financial regulations. That this was predictable. That you could have forecast this outcome. That if if you want harsher penalties, you should have lobbied for harsher penalties and had them in the financial agreement. Now, I do very much agree with Stefano Domenicali in this case that ultimately financial penalties for teams that have the financial capacity to exceed the cost cap probably aren't going to be meaningful. $7 million is a very low cost for Red Bull. That that that's, that was a great cost. That was a great investment in winning the 2022 Formula One World Championship, right? It was nothing for them. But I totally agree that the future has to be sporting penalties and it has to be a reduction in driver's points and or a reduction in constructor's points. I think that's the only way that teams will ultimately be incredibly sensitive to the amount of financial outlay that they're making 
moving towards the development of the car and, and the construction of the infrastructure to support the development of said car. But ultimately, that's on the teams. And it's on the teams to negotiate with the FOM and, and the FIA on, on stricter penalties. And they didn't do that originally. And perhaps they were all a little bit cautious that, hey, any one of us could um, unintentionally exceed the cap. And we don't want to be putting ourselves in a really difficult position 18 months, 24 months from now. But I think now that we're a couple of years in, because of course, 21 was the first year we did it voluntarily. They were doing the cost cap in 2020. But now that we're a couple of years into it, um, if the teams are feeling more confident and they feel that financially from an auditing uh, accountability perspective, they're in a good position. Yeah, let's go back and negotiate for sporting for sporting penalties because I think that's what should be the case here. Um, Stefano Minicoli, by the way, wraps up this this great article that you found by saying control is in the hands of the FIA. Personally, what I have asked is to anticipate as soon as possible the publication of the investigations made by the staff of the FIA. But I say this only because in this way it does not give rise to speculation and comments that are not good for anyone. And what he's acknowledging there is exactly what happened last year, which was news of cost cap breach teams uh, broke very, very early. It created a hellstorm in F1 media. It turned out to be true. And then it took months for the situation to be resolved and for penalties to be applied. So um, on the one hand, I don't blame the FIA for the penalties because I think the penalties outlined in the regulations were agreed upon by all parties. But I do think that the FIA needs to wrap up the cost cap investigations far earlier um, and there cannot be leaks. And again, based on what you and I were talking about from the top, it seems once again that there's leaks and we're starting to learn that potentially three teams breached the cap, which isn't good for the sport. So I don't know, the, the you know, this whole cost cap thing, the, like I, I think I was very much in favor of it when it came in but now I find myself frustrated with the whole thing because the idea the principle seems great but then at the same time it uh, it doesn't seem like you know it, it really lives up to the the intent of what it it really like I say lacks the teeth to have any meaningful consequences anyway so talking about uh, consequences that's a uh, you know a good segue into this next story so this is a story from uh, Josh uh, Sutil and Simon Patterson at the race.com and uh, Sebastian Vettel yeah the, the four-time world champion has uh, been demoing his uh, Williams FW14B and his McLaren MP48 what a pair of awesome cars to have in your car collection I would love to have that mark car collection which currently consists of cars a lot less spectacular than those anyways he is uh he's been dead with them at the uh the goodwood festival of speed at the final day there and he's using sustainable fuels to run both of those cars and what uh he's calling a race without a trace cause and uh, that's something that uh, he showcased at silverstone last year during uh, the british grand prix uh, weekend and uh vettel uh, wants to prove and demonstrate that you can have have fun racing but in a more environmentally conscious and responsible uh, way. And it's um, in, in, in something that he believes that maybe not everyone, you know, both in and out outside of uh, Formula One, that uh, maybe it's not completely wrapped their minds around, is completely uh, understood. So he's um, he's expressed some concerns and some fears that Formula One, which is uh, going to you know switch to sustainable fuels and starting in 26, you know, risks uh, to be you know disappearing, um, you know, if they don't take more aggressive and proactive moves um, to adapt and become more sustainable in what he. Believes 
believes is going to be like a you know ever worsening climate crisis. Um, anyways, he uh, he asked um, he was asked uh, by uh, the, the the media where his primary concern is, and so he talked uh, earlier this year about how we lost uh, the you know, the Emla Grand Prix because of the the, the flooding. And then um, and uh, the the horrible uh, extreme weather that they had in Italy that weekend, uh, Goodwood also canceled their third day because of the uh, you know threats of high winds and intense rain, and uh, you know he uh, used those as a couple of examples of how extreme uh, weather can have uh, effects on, um, on on motorsport. Anyways, Mark, would you like to uh, add a little bit more to this one? Yeah, I think one of the other considerations too, and and this is what I kind of more assumed the article was going to be about when you get into it, which is you look, ultimately, there might be places that we can't race or the frequency of race cancellation due to climate change could could escalate, right? Like we, we've be, literally begun to see that, that, that races are be, can, becoming canceled because of weather events that can be attributed to, to climate change, which is very, very scary. And I very much appreciate and respect Sebastian Vettel uh, for taking this position of using his stature to to communicate and convey concerns about climate change i think that's brilliant i love the idea that he's rocking these older formula one cars with sustainable drop in fuels i think that is amazing and it shows the potentials that are out there for current fleets of cars to become more climate friendly using new existing technology i think that is fantastic but i think the one thing that they don't really get into here is that Ultimately, legislation in individual countries could prevent the running of Formula One cars. That ultimately, if you have countries that have legislation at some point in the mid-2030s that says, look, you know what, um, only fully electric vehicles can be sold on a dealership lot, um, it might become more complex and challenging for F1 to continue to stage races in those same countries, even if they are using sustainable fuel and all these other kind of pieces. So I think the consideration here is F1 needs to continue to to move in that direction of sustainable fuels and electrification, because if it doesn't, the sport could ultimately be legislated out of these countries. And a lot of our listeners may not know this, but I know you and I know this, but back in the 90s and the 2000s, we saw a wave of countries that started introducing legislation that banned tobacco advertising in Formula One. And there was a host of races that almost dropped off the calendar, including Canada, because these governments in Canada and, and Belgium and throughout Western Europe we're coming forward and saying, look, you know, we're blocking all tobacco advertising. Like, that's not cool. Like, we want to we want to disincentivize and discourage people from from partaking in tobacco type hobbies and, and kind of interests. So they started banning tobacco um, advertising. Of course, tobacco advertising was the backbone, the financial backbone of Formula One. And there was risks in certain cases where these races were dropping off the calendar. And of course, ultimately, F1 finally got the message that, hey, tobacco advertising wasn't going to be the future of the sport and they adjusted. Um, but there was a very real threat that countries were going to lose races. And there's the potential for that to happen here as well, which is, I think, why sustainable fuels in 26 and increased electrification are so important because uh, the cars need to represent what's being legislated onto dealer lots in the countries where they race. Yeah, it is, it's very cool because just for a little bit of context before I read out this uh, quote from uh, uh, Seb, so the FW14B and the McLaren uh, MP4-8 the, these are cars that were basically on the grid in the early 90s. So they were basically kind of like fueled with, I wouldn't say ordinary petrol or gas, but it's, you know, a far, you know, very, very different fuel from what they're running now. 
Anyways, um, so the sustainable fuel that uh, that Seb is using in his own classic F1 cars is it's much cheaper than the fuels that uh, they're using right now. And even though he doesn't think that uh, you know th- that the cost savings are a huge incentive for Formula One, he believes that um, you know it'll be helpful in other ways. Anyways, um, Seb had to say the following quote: "The fuel F1 is using is a lot more expensive than the fuel I'm putting in the McLaren and the Williams, which is roughly four to five pounds per liter. I filled up with." diesel this week at a petrol station and paid at one pound 47 so there's a significant difference between the rolled fuel prices and racing fuels to people in f1 it doesn't make a difference i'm sorry maybe it should but it doesn't because there's enough money and the fuel they're burning today is far more expensive it's maybe something like five times more expensive compared to what i pay for the fuel i use but for some categories for private racing amateur racing it will make a difference and the more you make of uh, it, the, the better or cheaper it will become, end quote. So there you go. I mean, that's true, like the, the more they make of it. But I'd be interested to, to know like exactly what, uh, you know, the, the, the spec and some of the, the details of the fuel that he's running, because uh, it, it's interesting, like I say, because, I mean, he's using these exotic, you know, sustainable fuels that uh, are contemporary, they're modern. He's using them in cars that uh, that weren't really, you know, they're basically designed just to run petrol Although, like I say, it's a little bit more fancier than that. Anyways, Mark, uh, we're going to jump into another break. At this point, I'm going to to walk away. I've got to run off and take my kids to school. And I'm, I'm not going to do the silent goodbye like we did uh, a couple of weeks ago because we got some messages after saying, hey, did... Yeah it's, just, just, yeah, it's just like, did Daily ghost us halfway through a show? So on, on that note, I'm going to, to, to bid you all adieu and goodbye. And uh, I'll let Hammy take over on the flip side here. We still got a couple more stories to to cover for the, the, the show. And then Mark is going to preview the race itself. So on behalf of myself, enjoy the race this weekend. Mark and I will be back together in a couple of days to wrap this one up. So enjoy the Grand Prix. And with that being said, we're going to head into a break uh, to hear a message from our sponsors. And on the flip side, Mr. Mark Hamilton will bring this one uh, home. So, Mark, I'll uh, turn this over and let you take it uh, take it from there. So, here we go. Time for a break. Catch you all again in a couple of days. Bye for now. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me now, of course, is my friend, Mr. Daly. It is the middle of a beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia summer, and he has countless family responsibilities to take care of, even as early as 7 o'clock in the morning. So I'm going to finish off the news stories, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Hungarian Grand Prix. The next story that we're going to talk about is, again, uh, from Sebastian Vettel. But Sebastian Vettel has said that Nick DeVries' sacking was both harsh 
and brutal. And I don't think any of us disagree with that, said Vettel. I'm very happy for Daniel. Very happy. I like him, obviously. I raced with him and I met him at the test when I was shaking down the 1993 McLaren for this weekend. I'm very, very happy for him. On the other hand, you have to be honest as well. It's obviously a shame for Nick. The way it comes to an end, I think he was given a great chance. Maybe things didn't happen for him the way he expected or people expected, but it's also a bit harsh when it comes to a very sudden stop like that. It is brutal. Uh, continues Vettel. I met him last year for the first time and he seemed like a really good person and he's a really good driver. He won the F2 championship. He won international championships. So he's well recognized and I hope this sort of dent doesn't give a dent to his career. People tend to do that and that's not right. Maybe those 10 races didn't go according to how good they could have been. We don't know why, first of all, from the outside. And second, he is still a very good driver. So I have to have also have some sympathies for the fact that it's very harsh for him and I hope people don't uh, see that dent, quote unquote, on his career. So uh, a really nice acknowledgement from the four times world champion, Mr. Sebastian Vettel. But but I agree, obviously, it, it's tough when you're a Formula One driver and you work and aspire your entire career to find a seat in Formula One only for that opportunity to be ripped from you less than half of a less than halfway through your very first season. But I think we, we've talked about this in the past that Nick DeVries had multiple opportunities last year. He didn't have one, but he actually had two opportunities to join Formula One. One of them, of course, was Williams, and one was the surprise offer at at Alpha Tauri, which was advocated for by Helmut Marko, who was really impressed with Nick's performance at Monza in that, that Williams last year. And I think in hindsight for Nick that especially based on how the AT04 performed this year, that the Williams ride was probably the better, safer, more secure opportunity. And that unquestionably, he probably would have gotten to drive that car through the balance of the season. Uh, but I think at the time he, he made the decision based on the fact that you have to go into a season confident in your abilities. And I think he looked at what the two cars had to offer him. And he probably believed, especially given that it's, powered by that wonderful Tokyo-sourced Honda power unit, that the AlphaTauri was probably the better ride and that AlphaTauri probably had, despite the fact that some of their resources and infrastructure are quite antiquated themselves, that that was probably the better the better fit or the better opportunity. Of course, I don't think he could have anticipated his performance would have been as soft as it was, and I don't think he would have anticipated that the car was going to be so bad, but it was just a perfect storm of, of circumstances that ultimately led to his departure from F1. And again, as everyone says, super nice guy. He had some really kind comments to make this week about his time with the team um, and about Yuki and an appreciation for Alpha Tauri and the Red Bull family for the opportunity. And he'll probably end up with a, a works team, a manufacturer team um, and Formula E. And I think we all uh, wish him nothing Nothing but the best. Uh, the next story here is a cool summary uh, of all of the upgrades that we've seen with the MCL 60 over the last couple of races. And again, we've talked at length about the fact that this car has become something of a rocket ship. You know, at the beginning of the season during the car unveil way back in February, Zach Brown was working so hard to temper our expectations about what this car is and what the car was going to be at the beginning of the season. And then all of a sudden we get to Silverstone basically halfway through the season and they score two top four finishes. And you know what? At a glance, if you looked at the race classification and you didn't watch the race, like, okay, maybe it makes sense. Maybe it was wet. Maybe there was a series of safety cars. Maybe there was virtual safety cars and the field got bunched up and some of the 
leaders at the top of the driver's championship crashed out. Like there could have been circumstances, but it was a dry race and it was a clean race. And the car just demonstrated tremendous grip, tremendous balance. And it seems from a development perspective to be in a really good place. And I, I think the ultimate acknowledgement of where this car is, is the fact that they didn't have one driver in the top five at Silverstone, they had two drivers in the top four, which means that both of the drivers are benefiting from the significantly upgraded MCL 60. And I think that, again, that's good for everybody because we've spent so much time this year talking about the fact that we needed Ferrari and we needed Mercedes and we needed Aston Martin to be competitive because we needed something to talk about as Formula One fans. So the fact that McLaren is now in that mix, and I'm not suggesting they're going to finish top four in the Constructors' Championship because I don't think that's a reality. Um, they maybe finish top five, maybe finish top six, but it certainly gives us hope for for next year. Now, there's a great article here over autosport.com written by Matt Summerfield, and he does a really good job of summarizing some of those key upgrades that the Woking-based team has introduced this year that have really amplified the performance of the car. Uh, one of those was, and I'm just going to quickly run through these, uh, changes have been made to the shape and position of the floor fences. Um, McLaren had number two, McLaren had flirted with a side pod inlet design similar to that used by Red Bull. Uh, its latest update has resulted in a design that's even more like its rival. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, number three, the upper surface of the floor already have a, had a, a heavily contoured blister to accommodate the lower SIS while also creating the necessary pocket of space for the underfloor too. So this has been a big upgrade. And again, reading here from Matt Summerfield's article, number four, the changes made to the forward portion of the side pod and the inlet have necessitated that the mirror housing and their associated paraphernalia be redesigned. Number five, the aerodynamic fairing that surrounds the halo now features a vertical blade as the rear leg transitions into the rear bodywork. Number six, the overall change in the shape of the side pods has resulted in the deletion of the swage line down the side of the bodywork. And I'm going to circle back to side pods in a minute. Uh, McLaren is the number seven. McLaren is the latest team to adopt a deeper water slide style gully on the side pods upper surface following the footsteps of Aston Martin, which took a more aggressive approach to the design architecture first wielded by Alpine. Number eight, the upper cooling gill panel has been removed from the traverse position, one more commonly utilized by its rivals. Number nine, the shape of the engine cover shelf has been optimized to take into account the relocation of the cooling panel. Number 10, one of the big visual changes to the MCL 60's floor is the floor edge. And number 11, the footprint of the engine cover and rear cooling outlet has been reduced, which also allows the size of the shark fin to be increased. So fundamentally, what, what he's summarizing here is that virtually all of the aerodynamic surfaces on the car have been chased and modified, some of them following in the direction that other more successful teams have follow, kind of pursued. So if you look at the side pod design, very similar to what Aston Martin's been doing this year, um, the, the inlet uh, space, um, the side pod inlet design, very similar to what Red Bull's doing. And of course, we also know that they brought a new floor this year. And the floor is important because 80% of all of the down force on a current spec Formula One car comes from the floor. Interestingly this week, and this is why I wanted to kind of circle back to this, but uh, there's been a lot of kind of chatter amongst team principals and teams within the grid this year that given how much of the downforce of the car and how much of the aerodynamic importance of the car stems from the floor, that changing a side pod design isn't fundamentally that important to the aerodynamic efficiencies and the aerodynamic characteristics of the car. Uh, but Andrea Stella this week had made a really interesting point and he said, quote unquote, anyone who suggests that the side pod design isn't important uh, as a characteristic of a Formula One car is a quote 
quote unquote Pinocchio. And I thought that was a very, very, very cool comment. But overall, I think a huge appreciation to everybody back at Woking in, in that team for what they've been able to put together with respect to this car. And of course, they, they finished relatively poorly last year, relatively to where I think they wanted to be. And of course, that benefited them in the sense that they got more wind tunnel time. And I think some of the benefits of that wind tunnel time only realize or become realized over time as they're able to get in there and process the data and put that into the simulators and then start to machine parts and get them onto the car. It's not something that uh, delivers instant returns, uh, but obviously they're benefiting from that. The other cool thing that we should keep our eye on too is that currently McLaren shares an older wind tunnel or effectively leases capacity at an older wind tunnel. Their own internal wind tunnel is going to be coming online shortly. And I think that that's something that everyone, Zach Brown, Zach Brown and Down is very, very excited about uh, about introducing. Uh, the next story here kind of ties back to something that we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of races, and that's the fact that there's seemingly some discord amongst all of the teams on the grid with respect to the 2026 engine regulations. And if you remember when the 2026 engine regulations were introduced at a high level, the promise, the commitment was that they were going to feature a 50-50 split between power that's generated from the internal combustion engine and the turbocharger, and that 50% of the power was going to be generated from the electrical system, so from the from the uh, MGU-K system, so generating electricity from kinetic sources. Uh, the challenge, I think, has been that some teams in their development journey have been arguing that, look, uh, realistically, generating 50% of our power from, from electrical sources isn't where we are from a developmental perspective and from uh, infrastructure perspective, that the reality is that's probably asking too much of the car's engineers, and it's probably asking too much of the car because it's very difficult to harvest that much electrical energy given how much power a Formula One car puts down. And I think recently we've heard people like Max Verstappen speak to this, and, and obviously Christian Horner has been a huge advocate for changing that 50-50 split to maybe a 55-45 split, favoring the internal combustion charge, internal combustion engine and, and the turbocharger. Uh, but now Stefano Domenicali has weighed in as well, acknowledging the concerns that uh, a lot of the teams have, have shared. And he says, it's a lot of work to be done in the next couple of weeks. There are other meetings that will happen in the next weeks to make sure that the evolution of the project is going in the right direction. I want to be positive in the fact that we are going to have the right package, considering, of course, the decisions that have been taken with regard to the engine, the power unit, and the car itself. As always in life, you need to make sure that there is the right balance and together to have the best vision for the best program for F1. And I'm convinced that we will achieve that. So a general acknowledgement here that these conversations are ongoing. And while of course, Frederick Vasseur representing Ferrari and Christian Horner representing Red Bull. And of course, Red Bull has their own internal powertrains division now are absolute advocates for changing that ratio, that power ratio from 50-50 to 55-45. Uh, there are other team principals on the grid, including including Total Wolf, that say, look, we're very confident based on what we're seeing in the simulator and based on our development work that a 50-50 power split is perfectly suitable to the 2026 regulations and that, hey, perhaps they're just seeing different things because they're not as far down the development journey as they are indicating that they are. So again, it's a little bit of drama. It's fun to watch. I, I would be very, very surprised if that that split was to change I think being able to market and to 
to shout from the mountains that your cars feature a 50-50 power split between uh, electrical power generation and power generation coming from your V6 turbo in internal combustion engine combination, I think is something that's really important to F1. Um, I think it's also something that's really important to the FIA. And I don't think that's something that they're going to move from. Um, I think Christian Horner is probably very sensitive about this because of course, in previous iterations of regulation changes, his team has sourced power units from Honda and Renault. And this is the first time that they're building that power unit from the ground up. And unlike Total Wolf, who's a little bit hands off with respect to the construction and the development of the Mercedes Formula One power unit, Christian Horner is directly overseeing, and in the same way that I think Frederick Vassour is, but is more directly overseeing the project. So he might be more sensitive to what's being shared to him by the engineers working on that project. But ultimately, I think being able to market a 50-50 power split is important to the FIA and Formula One. And I don't anticipate uh, that there's going to be a point where that is going to change. All right. You know what? Daily's gone, which means no more commercials. Again, that's a secret between you and me. Daily doesn't need to know because I'm not confident he comes back and revisits the episodes that I record without him. But the fact that we're not going to have commercials is a secret between us. So I, I would really love now to jump into a little bit of a conversation about the Hungarian Grand Prix. But what I'd like to talk about a little bit um, is, in fact, the Alpha Tauri AT04 versus Red Bull. And I think the reason that this conversation is relevant is because there's going to be an awful lot of eyeballs this week on the Alpha Tauri car because, of course, Daniel Ricciardo is going to be making his return to Formula One. Of course, he hasn't been on the grid since the end of last season when his time at McLaren uh, came to an end. He had, obviously, an, a final year on that contract, and that wasn't... Uh, that wasn't something that he was going to realize as he was effectively bought out and, and pushed aside in favor of Oscar Piastri. And I think basically the early returns from Oscar is that that was probably the right thing to do. Uh, Daniel really struggled to come to grips with how to drive that car and position it on track, um, how to operate the braking system, et cetera, et cetera. But he has a fresh start and a fresh opportunity now with Alpha Tauri. And of course, after last season concluded, he was basically given a reserve driver, a test driver role, um, and kind of an ambassadorship role with Red Bull. So he was around the team, around the factory. He was in the sim. He got to do a tire test uh, last week. And of course, that was very successful, which really maybe was the genesis for the conversation about putting him into the Alpha Tower for the rest of the season. But we've talked a lot the last two podcasts about the fact that, hey, we should be cautious about what we're going to expect from this car, that Yuki's had a couple of points finishes this year. But I think if you hear the comments from him on the track and off the track, it's been difficult to drive. And obviously, Nick DeVries really struggled with this car as well. Um, and I think a lot of Nick's struggles this year weren't necessarily uh, related to his driving style, but rather the fact that this was a very, very difficult car to drive. And one of the questions that I, I've had a lot of recently is, look, Red Bull has, has two cars effectively, right? Like Red Bull organizationally, they own the Red Bull effectively the Honda works team, because it really is given the fact that it's this unique exclusive uh, power unit arrangement, but the RB19 is absolutely decimating the field. It's the best car in Formula One by a country mile. And then the AT04 is arguably the worst car scoring the fewest points with the worst lap times. And, and how can there be so much Delta between these two cars. And there was a really great article over on the race.com this week by Ed Straw. And, and he calls out a couple of things. And 
I, we've talked about this before that different parts of a Formula One car fall into different parts classifications. And he calls out this one, and this was new to me, and I didn't know this, but obviously there's a category of Formula One parts called transferable components. Um, and there's also open source components, but for the sake of this conversation, we're gonna talk about transferable components. And transferable components include everything from the hydraulics to the gearbox, to the rear suspension and the front suspension. And when I say they're transferable, it means one team can design and build them and sell them to another team. And that other team can implement them into their car. So obviously not every component is a transferable component, but there are some. So naturally the assumption would be that, look, if, if I'm Red Bull, um, I'm going to sell as many transferable components to AlphaTauri as possible. And in the case of transferable components, they do sell quite a few parts to AlphaTauri, but I think surprisingly for myself and surprisingly for a lot of people, they're selling AlphaTauri 2022 spec parts. They're not selling them the current spec parts. And I think the closest comp is if you look at Ferrari and Haas, they have a very close technical partnership and Ferrari sells Haas a ton, a ton of transferable components, but they sell them current spec components. So even though, even though AlphaTauri benefits by running a bunch of these Red Bull components, they're running last year's spec parts. So they're not getting upgraded. They're not getting revised and they're not absolutely optimal versus what Red Bull is running this year, which I thought was really, really surprising and it's something that's very common in Grand Prix motorcycle racing especially for customer teams that might be buying a previous year spec chassis or a previous year spec engine uh, but very unusual in Formula One that hey we're going to sell you parts but we're going to sell you 2022 spec parts even though you are part of the same corporate family so I, I thought that was really interesting the other the other category that we should probably talk about is the fact that teams, all teams have to design what are called listed team components. And listed team components are those whose design, manufacture, and intellectual property is owned and or controlled by a single competitor or its agents on an exclusive basis. So there's a slew of parts within the car that you either have to design yourself and you don't get to sell them, or you have to go to a third-party supplier and have them design those on an exclusive basis for you. So if you don't have the means to do it yourself, you can go to somebody else outside of Formula One and say, hey, I need you to build me this part, but you're doing so on an exclusive basis, meaning you cannot use any of that IP in a part that you sell to a competitor. Uh, so with that said, there's a bunch of parts. Um, these include aerodynamic components, the survival shell, the roll structure, the front impact structure, the plank assembly, the wheel drum, drum deflectors, fuel bladder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these parts, AlphaTauri has to has to has to design themselves. Now, there was a project since 2019 uh, around the time that the two teams uh, adopted uh, the same power unit that there was an effort to create some synergies between the two teams. Now, of course, if you look back at the history of Red Bull and you look back at the history of Toro Rosso, there were times where they weren't even running the same power units. If you flash back five, six, seven years ago, you would have the Red Bull running a Renault power unit and you would have the Toro Rosso running a Ferrari power unit. And when you have different power units in the car, all of the different things related to the design of the car, the manufacture of the car, the chassis, the aerodynamics, all of those things are influenced by the nature of that power unit, the position of the power unit, the weight of the power unit, et cetera, et cetera. So there wasn't a ton that they could share, but since 2019, there's this been ongoing effort to kind of unify and create some synergies. But I think one of the things that we've discovered recently is probably some ongoing frustration at Milton Keynes 
that that process, that project hasn't happened quickly enough. Now, of course, Alpha Tauri has a new CEO in Pete Bayer. And I think one of the tasks that he's going to undertake is working very, very closely with Milton Keynes to bring the development of these cars as close as possible without breaching the regulations. So we know Alpha Tauri is based in Italy. Red Bull's based out of Milton Keynes, which is about 45 minutes from Silverstone in the UK. But I think they're going to be much, 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 much closer. And I think what this is ultimately going to do is create some discomfort amongst the other teams in Formula One. And the reason I say this is I've always been shocked that the other teams in Formula One, the Mercedes, the Ferrari, the teams that don't happen to own a second F1 team, I've always been very surprised that they haven't been more... Um, what's the proper word here, confrontational about this, that this is a net benefit to Red Bull for a host of reasons, and it's a benefit that none of them can replicate. With all the money in the world, they can't replicate having a B team on the grid. But I think one of the reasons why they've been a little bit passive to this is ultimately AlphaTauri's never been competitive, even as Toro Rosso, it's never been a championship contender. So in a way, if I'm Ferrari and Mercedes, there's this other team on the grid, and yeah, for sure, it lends some driver development benefits to, to Red Bull, but it's technically just one less team on the grid that's actually competing in a meaningful way for a championship. But I think if Red Bull's designs for the future of this team come to fruition, that this is a team that's going to be far more alike the current RB19 because they're going to get current spec transferable components. They're going to have access to their wind tunnel. And of course, they, they share the wind tunnel today, although they're not allowed to share data. So they draw different conclusions from the aerodynamic data that they accumulate in that tunnel. But I think that Red Bull and AlphaTauri are really going to push the limits of what's appropriate in terms of sharing data um, and, sharing, and sharing components. And I think that's going to create a lot of discomfort amongst the other teams, especially if Alpha Tauri themselves do become a competitive team. Now, speaking to this Grand Prix, I think it's also important to acknowledge that, hey, the AT04 has been terrible this year, and we've talked a lot about why. It's terrible late corner, or late, it's terrible with late braking, it's terrible in smaller, tighter, more technical slow speed corners, it struggles with understeer, but they have been bringing some pretty significant upgrades to this car. Of course, they brought a new floor, upper body work, and a new diffuser. They brought a new version of a medium downforce rear wing that we saw at Silverstone, who will likely make a reappearance this week, and they have have a ton of additional upgrades on the way. And of course, unlike Red Bull, they benefit from a lot of wind tunnel time, although they've got a lot of catching up to do because clearly the aerodynamic formula they have right now isn't working for them. But I wanted to make sure that I kind of prefaced the Hungarian Grand Prix a little bit by kind of setting the stage for the car that Daniel Ricciardo is going to be driving potentially next year and through the rest of this year. So it has been upgraded. Now, we didn't see we didn't see the real benefits and we didn't see the real gains from that package at Silverstone. Maybe it will become a little bit more obvious at Hungary, but maybe not. Now, talking about Hungary, this is a track, the Hungarian. Hungarian Grand Prix, the Hungora Ring, that's been on the circuit since 1986. And I think I can be pretty candid with everybody at home now that I think for a point for a few years, knowing that a lot of people were new to Formula One, I would often try to sell tracks and drivers and cars um, to you. I, it would be a hard sell as if I was working for F1 and I was trying to sell tickets. But I think I can be pretty candid that this is a terrible track and, it, and it's really a terrible event. And there's a number of reasons for that that I'll get into right now. Uh, first of all, 
the Hangora Ring is often referred to as Monaco without buildings. And the reason people make that reference or speak to it in that way is that overtaking is incredibly difficult. That this was a track that was built in the mid-80s. It opened in 1986. Of course, at the time, it was really unique because this was the first time that Formula One, indeed really professional sports in general, had competed behind the Iron Curtain. So there's a lot of eyeballs on the sport. But it was designed in 1984. 85 constructed and completed in 1986. Now, of course, at the time, they would have been building and constructing this circuit uh, that would be designed to accommodate cars of the era. And unfortunately, the track has seen no meaningful upgrades or changes since then. So what we're going to see this weekend is very similar to what people were seeing in the mid eight late 80s and, and in the early 90s. And the reason I think this is relevant is it's a very, very, very short, very, very technical and very, very tight track. And the racing line itself is truly problematic because it's very narrow. In fact, it's probably no wider than about two meters, which is about the width of a Formula One car, which means that one, the nature of the track, given the fact that the track's not wide, given the fact that the racing line's not wide, and given the fact that it's so tight, um, makes overtaking virtually impossible here, virtually impossible. Now, I know some of you are at home saying, but Mark, there were 65 overtakes last year at the Hungarian Grand Prix. That's the middle of the pack. That's not bad for a Formula One race in 2022. And I would kind of walk that back and say, sure. And of course, last year was good because I think we saw the benefit of the fact that these cars weren't throwing off a lot of dirty air. But every one of those overtakes or virtually every one of those overtakes happened on the start finish straight heading into turn one. That really there is one opportunity to overtake on this track and that's it the rest of the track just becomes a procession and I think and I've written this down in my notes here I think that the drivers really dislike this circuit one because it's not exciting to drive two because there's so little opportunity for overtaking and three because it's truly a physically demanding circuit and if you look at the layout of the track you've really got one straight which isn't super long by formula one standards and the rest of the track is tight and it's very very twisty and i think if you're a formula one driver and you're in that car for an hour and a half it's physically demanding and physically exhausting. And I think for a lot of drivers, having a long straight or a series of long straights is an opportunity to cool your tires, to cool your brakes. But it's also important because it gives you the opportunity to rest. And a Formula One driver at the Hangora Ring doesn't get the opportunity to rest because they're being thrown from one corner to another corner. And they're not super fast corners, which is also part of the problem. They're often lower speed corners. I think the average, the, I think the average speed on this track is amongst the lowest in Formula One at about 160 kilometers an hour, but it's very demanding for drivers. And I think the best reference would be that if you've ever been on a roller coaster, there's a point where you just want to get off because your body is being thrown from one corner to another, to another, to another. And I think that's very similar to the experience that a Formula One driver has at this track. Now, again, because uh, because of those characteristics that I just spoke to and the fact that overtaking is so difficult, uh, Qualifying is really, really important. Between 1986 and 2018, 15 of the 33 race winners were the pole sitter that more often than not, at least 50% of the time, the driver that takes the qualifying pole position is going to win this race, which again, has mirrors, has mirrors of 
of Monaco. Um, but again, ultimately for me that this isn't really a great track and it hasn't been upgraded over the years. In terms of surface characteristics, a couple of other things to think about when it comes to this track is it's typically very hot. The surface temperature is very hot. So uh, there's no question that there's a lot of load being placed on the tires and drivers have to work very carefully to manage those tires, which is difficult when you're throwing the corner car from one corner to uh, another, but it's also very much a monster downforce circuit. So we've talked a lot recently about downforce circuits, low downforce circuits, high speed circuits. Silverstone's a bit of both. It's a high speed circuit and you certainly need to be able to create downforce in some of those high speed corners. Uh, some of the circuits like Monaco, hey, it's a slow circuit with technical corners, but you're not generating enough speed in any of those corners to create downforce. On this circuit, the corners are fast enough that you certainly create downforce. So here, having a super strong high-speed power unit isn't necessarily that important. What's really important at this circuit is being able to sustain an average speed. And every single Formula One car can, can get to 160 kilometers an hour quite quickly. That's, that's not the question here. The question here and the challenge here is as a driver and in terms of setting up this car is how do I set up the aerodynamic features of the car so I can sustain a strong average speed from corner to corner to corner. That downforce is important important here because while high speed straights don't really exist, being able to carry as much speed through the corners as possible is. So typically we see cars come out with big wings and the aerodynamic setup of the cars reflect the fact that this is very much a monster, monster circuit. The other thing to consider here as well is that this isn't a heavily used circuit. So typically most circuits feature Formula One races, MotoGP races, they feature touring car, they feature club racing, etc. Really the only event that we typically see at the Hungora ring each year is Formula One. So by the time we get there, it's a little bit dirty. It's a little bit dusty. It also gets dusty as the weekend progresses. But there's also this interesting kind of opposing position on how the track evolves through the course weekend. There's some people who strongly believe, and all of this plays out through the data, although it varies from weekend to weekend, there's a lot of people that believe that, hey, this is a very dusty, unused circuit. So as it gets rubbered in over the course of the weekend, driving gets a little bit easier and lap times get progressively faster over the course of the weekend. There's other people that says, hey, track evolution is actually pretty low. Um, and because it's so dusty and because it's so dry, it doesn't benefit in the same way way that other circuits do from being rubbered in over the course of the weekend. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be interesting for us to watch this weekend, which is just, just how does the track evolve over the course of the weekend itself? But like I said, um, mechanical grips, important, top speed, less important downforce is absolutely critical because you want to be able to get to a certain speed and sustain that speed from corner to corner to corner. Um, and like I said, ultimately your one opportunity to overtake is going into turn one. And the way that you set up yourself up for success there is as you complete the series of turns through the circuit, you get to lap or you get to turn 13, turn 14. If you're planning, if you're hoping to execute an overtake, the way you do that is by lap or by turn 13, you need to get as close to the car in front of you as possible. Put your car in an offsetting position because you don't want to be directly behind them because that creates a lot of dirty air, which will hamper your ability to follow closely. So you kind of go on an offset racing line, which is really challenging because like I said, the racing line here is so narrow. So you step out of that racing line, it's a little bit dusty, but you will want to avoid a lot of that dirty weight coming off the car. So 
turn 13, turn 14, going into that long straight, relatively long straight, long straight by Hungarian Grand Prix standards. But by turn 14, you want to be as close to that car as possible. You get DRS, you hook it up, and you overtake that car as you go into the braking zone into that sharp uh, 180 degree turn at turn one. And that's really, in, in a lot of ways, um, what this circuit is about. And I wrote down some statistics here because I wanted to look this up. But if you go back to 1986 and you look at the nature of the Formula One car in that year, uh, they weighed about 540 kilograms, which is about 1,200 pounds. They were 2.1 meters wide and 4.3 meters long on average. If you look at a modern Formula One car, obviously they're much, much heavier. They're 798 kilograms versus 540. So their weight has increased exponentially. So that's a lot more Formula One car to throw around from from corner to corner. Uh, they're actually, surprisingly, and, and I think a lot of people are, are surprised by this, they're actually a little bit narrower that the current regulations call for cars that really can't be more than two meters wide, but they're hugely longer. A current Formula One car at 5.5 meters or about 18 feet is exponentially longer than a Formula One car was back then. And it wasn't easy to overtake in the 80s when Drivers like Art and Senna were competing in Formula One. It's just become exponentially harder since then. So I don't necessarily have any answers, but I think that if this is a track that's going to be on the calendar for a significant amount of time, there's certainly some value in investing um, in in modifying it and changing it, as we've seen other tracks do. We've seen tracks like uh, the Spanish Grand Prix modify that track, and we've seen it at Yoss, and we've seen it at other places where race organizers are recognizing that the current configurations aren't necessarily ideal for the current generation of Formula One car, and they're doing things to increase the spectacle. And I would I would lobby and, and hope that there's an acknowledgement and at some points um, a desire to do something like that here. Now, in terms of people that have been successful here over the year, uh, Lewis Hamilton's won at this track a ridiculous eight times. He won in 07, 9, 12, 13, 16, 18, 19, and 20. Of course, he hasn't won there since 2020, uh, but he has won here eight times. Michael Schumacher's won here four times, Senna three times, PK three times, Damon Hill three times, Jacques Villeneuve, sorry, um, Senna has won here three times, PK Hill, Villeneuve, Hakkinen, Button, and Vettel have all won here twice. Um, in terms of constructors, McLaren has pulled 11 race victories out of this uh, track. Williams seven, Ferrari seven, Mercedes five, uh, and Red Bull three but I think that's really a, a pretty decent summary of the nature of the track and maybe what we can expect to see that qualifying is going to be really important it's not necessarily going to be a great race and whatever overtaking that we do see is likely going to happen going into corner one so cars like the Williams which have demonstrated um, some real friskiness recently when we've started to get to some of these power tracks are going to certainly be at a disadvantage but it'll be really interesting to see if the Aston Martin, which is a little bit draggy, but generally produces pretty good downforce in corners as the season has evolved. It'll be really great to see how they look this year um, at the circuit. Uh, Ferrari, I think some of the characteristics of that car there, it's just a little bit draggy. It's definitely a car capable of some very strong top speeds, but it's not necessarily a really great car when it comes to creating maximum downforce. It'll be interesting to see what it looks like. The Red Bull, no question at all, is suitable for every track and can be configured to be successful anywhere. So I think we should expect to see that that car will be very, very strong um, as well. But yeah, that's that's the Hungarian Grand Prix 
quite frankly, in, in a nutshell, I, I know at this point we would talk, typically talk about making some predictions in terms of what we would expect to see this, this race weekend. I think it's probably fair to say that it's going to be hot and it's going to be dry. Um, I think Max Verstappen has that car dialed in. The tire management's good. They don't overload the tires. They don't overheat. The brakes don't get, oh, get too hot. And braking is going to be important here as well with all of these 180-degree corners and the tight corners, et cetera, et cetera. But I would have every reason to expect that the, the Red Bull is going to be successful this weekend. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about Sergio Perez over the course of the last two months and his struggles. And of course, I think he's still looking to do everything that he possibly can to secure his race seat for for next season because that's far from guaranteed. Uh, but we've also got these other really interesting stories now, which is, hey, can McLaren with that MCL 60 build on the successes that they've experienced recently? Maybe the MCL 60 was just particularly well designed for a track like Silverstone, which is a high downforce, sorry, maybe a medium high downforce circuit, but also a high speed, high power circuit. Um, does their does their aerodynamic formula and do the characteristics of that car carry over well? It'll be it'll be interesting to see. So that's really the Hungarian Grand Prix in in a nutshell. Like I said, I, I don't particularly enjoy this circuit. I, I think it needs to be significantly reworked, and hopefully there's going to be pressure from uh, the FOM um, in years to come to improve this circuit in terms of the racing spectacle. Obviously, you could smooth out some of those corners, introduce some higher speed sections, um, widen the track, widen the racing line to create more opportunity for overtaking, uh, but. But yeah, that's that's it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, everybody listening at home, thanks so much for tuning in. We really appreciate that you do. And as always, if you enjoy what we do here, we would absolutely love if you could give us a rating on Spotify or a rating and a review on Apple. It means the world to both of us. Like Daly said from the top, we are still working on organizing. It is in the books, our first ever watch party on November 18th. If you happen to be in the Pacific Northwest and you can make the time, if you can come, we will be hosting a watch party at my house for the Las Vegas Grand Prix on a Saturday night, a Saturday night Formula One race. Incredible. We will be providing food. We will be providing drinks. We'll be providing the DJ. It's going to be a lot of fun. And like I said, the only thing that we're going to ask is that those attending make a $30 contribution donation to the Canadian Mental Health Association. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in and, and listening. I hope you had a lot of fun today, at least as much fun as we had putting this one in the books. And like I said, it's still very early in the morning. So I'm going to wander off, kind of crack open a nice cold Diet Coke for my breakfast and get ready for a, a long day at work. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song, and my songs gon' break through like a running back